Dr. Alan Leica here, and I'd like to welcome you to How to Live a Fantastic Life Show, where we will be discussing the important aspects of your life. We hope to inspire you to live the best life you can. Get out of your comfort zone and explore the awesome world around you. Break through your barriers. Take inspired action. Use the difficulties in your life to achieve the best version of you. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have a very special guest. His name is Sean Tyler Foley, and he had a very full acting career since he was six years old. And he's been featured in Freddy vs. Jason, Door to Door, Carrie, and the musical Ragtime. He's the author of a number one best-selling book, The Power to Speak Naked. Tyler can help you with this as well. But what's more important is Tyler's journey on how he got from where he was to where he is now. Welcome, Sean. Oh, thank you, Alan. And, and again, Tyler amongst friends, and we are friends, so... Uh, Sean Tyler is is what my mother yells at me when I'm in trouble. <laughs> it, it's like everybody when when somebody's in trouble, a lot of people will refer to them by their full four or five names, and so therefore it all becomes something that you don't want to be referred to your full name. Yeah, and, and it it is reserved uh, especially for family members because uh, the name is properly Sean Tyler, like Jean Luc. But anglophones, we don't tend to do that non-hyphenated two-name thing. So it's it's a bit of a unique thing for me. So really, only my mom and my sister uh, nowadays call me Sean Tyler and a, and a sprinkle of friends who've known me for literally years and years and years. But if you ask my wife who she's married to, she'd say Tyler. And then she would go off on a rant about how Sean Tyler is confusing. <laughs> so tell me, what was it like to be a childhood actor? It was one of the greatest gifts that I've ever received in my life. Um, and it was nice, too, because I grew up performing without the pressure to perform. My mom wasn't a stage mom. She wasn't. In fact, she was a very, very busy professional. So oftentimes I was being taken to rehearsals and performances by fam other family members. So my aunt and uncle would take me into the city um, or my other uncle would take me or I'd have sleepovers at my grandparents place and then take like abs or transit down from uh, North Calgary down into uh, to the downtown. So it was, it was really, that to itself was a really interesting experience getting to uh, grow up and be a little bit more mature, um, especially because I grew up in a small town, a very, very rural community based primarily around ranching. So to be able to be exposed to the metropolitan of the downtown city core uh, was was great and and continues to provide dividends and, and fruitful endeavors uh, to this day. Well, that's good. And I also understand you didn't just stay in Calgary. You also went to Vancouver and other cities as well. Yeah. Um, I When I was growing up um, doing the theater, I knew that there was uh, venues outside of downtown Calgary. You know, Calgary has a, a wonderful and vibrant arts community and, and acting and performance community, but it is still very small. And going to a fine arts high school the way that I did and specializing in musical theater and then minoring in television, I always knew 
that other destinations, if I wanted to do this professionally, was where I needed to go. So I was very lucky before I even graduated. Um, I was still 17. And in my last um, quarter of school, because the school that I went to was on the Copernicus system. So we weren't semestered, we were quartered. And I actually moved to Vancouver and had my first role in Vancouver as a professional actor before I ever walked across the stage at my graduation. Wow. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. So you did this for a number of years and then uh, some life events shifted you away from acting. Can you share those with the audience? Well, there were, there were multiple and I Again, uh, having grown up in the theater, I was my first professional engagement was at six years old. Uh, so, you know, at 25, I'd been doing it for 20 years. And like most people in a 20 year career, I was looking forward to retirement. And uh, I had become very complacent with the uh, industry. And I'll, I'll never forget the day where I knew that I needed to step back. I had done an audition for a very significant production, although the role was just a very, very small role within it. And uh, usually when you audition, you get a call back. If you get a call back, it's a few days later, if not a week or a few weeks down the road, like it's never the same day. And at the time I had stopped living in Vancouver and was actually living in the interior BC in Penticton because the Okanagan is beautiful. And as an actor, I was only working once or twice a month, which is really good for an actor. But for the rest of the time, you don't need to be in Vancouver. And Vancouver's expensive and Penticton was more affordable and more beautiful. And so I was on my way back and I got my, a call from my agent just before um, leaving Hope. And anybody who knows the area knows that you're about to get into Manning Park. And at that point, there is no cell reception for like an hour. And then at that point, when you do get cell reception, you're basically... Uh, into the Okanagan and, and almost home for me. And so it was literally the drop dead point. And my agent phone, she says, you've got a call back. I was like, great. When is it? She said in about an hour, <laughs> I was like two hours away from the studio. And I was like, I just, I, you know, I, in my heart, I didn't want to go, but I knew that other people would be dying for that opportunity. And so I turned around and went back, did the call back. I actually ended up booking the role ironically and I knew at that point that I had become very jaded with the industry and needed to step back. So I decided to retire and go back to school. Interesting. Now, you also had an interesting event, a medical event, when you were 17 that many doctors can't explain even to this day. Yeah. Um, I, and it's funny because the best way to describe it is either a, a mini stroke or a uh, a palsy. And, and you being a medical professional, we've had this discussion, know that that is not accurate. If it was a Bell's palsy, it would have only affected my face. If it was a stroke, it would have very high probability that I wouldn't have recovered from it. And I, I, and this happened, you know, almost 30 years ago. And so the ability to diagnose what was happening to me was very slim, but the end result was New Year's Eve, 1996. I had a fully functioning body. When I woke up New Year's day, 1997, uh, the left side of my body didn't work and was that way for almost a year and put a, a lot of focus back on what was a priority to me. 
because at, at that point in my life, I had also become quite complacent. I hadn't become jaded with the industry, but I'd become very complacent with it because I was the big fish in a small pond. And, you know, when you're a young performer, there aren't a lot of other young performers. So I'd be going out to auditions and seeing the same three people and being like, Hey, Dave, Hey, Jared, how you doing? You know, nice to see you, Hanno. And, you know, we do our auditions and one of us was going to get it. And we just knew that that was just how it was. And you kind of knew who was right for the role and you didn't even really need to try at that point. And so I had become very lackadaisical with my approach to my craft. And then New Year's Day, 1997, waking up and having it all taken away. Because if you can't, you can't use your face, you're not going to be an actor. And particularly with me specializing in musical theater at the time and going to a fine arts high school where I was in a production that was very dance and tap dance intensive, I had to withdraw and really focus on my health. Yeah. Well, that's a, 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 a eye-opening experience. You literally had to open your eyes as to what else you could do. Because, you know, there's actors that stay in that field forever and that's the space they're in and they keep on doing it and they keep on working it. And, you know, it's a full-time job, not only to be an actor, but to sell your acting ability, to stay in front of the people that are hiring. Because if you don't, you're not going to stay in it very long. Yeah, and what was interesting about it was... um, it really reinforced that it was what I wanted to do because all I could think about was how, what, what do I need to do to get back on stage? What do I need to do to get in front of the camera? How do I do it? And that was really the driving force to go to Vancouver. A, my uh, aunt and uncle, my aunt is, is a very well-respected nurse. And at the time was living in Vancouver and working for the um, Vancouver regional health. And, uh, she, she had access to a lot of, uh, medical professionals that I didn't have individually here. So being able to combine both a city where there was more opportunity for me to work, which also would provide me the opportunity to work potentially with a disability if it became a long-term thing and have the opportunity to have access to a little bit more, um, options when it came to treatment. Uh, I had a wonderful medical team here in Van- in Calgary led by uh, doctors Bob and Joanne Corbett, and they really um, were the, the central point of my rehabilitation. But to have better access in Vancouver was, was something that was appealing as well. So that kind of you know, prompted that move in and around May or June of 1997 to get out there. And I di- again, I didn't have a full, what I would call a full recovery. I don't know that I've ever fully recovered, but I've gotten about 95% of the way. And a lot of that came in those last six months. So June 97 to about December of 97. Excellent. So let's move things, fast forward things a bit. And Can you briefly summarize how you got on this path of being a a speaker and writing about speaking and coaching people about speaking? It was so circuitous when you look at it, you know, go from six-year-old, if a six-year-old Tyler was to tell me, you know, or if I was to go back in time and tell a six-year-old Tyler, this is where you're going to be, I would have never seen this. But looking back, it's very connected path. So 
when I retired from the business, the nice thing about being a child performer is a lot of your money goes into trust. And so I had a fairly significant education fund that I was able to dip into and pay for my school. And I went back to school and got an engineering discipline and uh, specialized in geomatics, uh, which is earth study and more specifically into photogrammetry. And the funny thing about that is when you're in that type of business, your primary client is the government. And so I had started my own mapping firm uh, based out of uh, the Air Ranch just south of Calgary and had a wonderful business partner. And uh, we needed to have a safety system. So I ended up drawing the short straw, trying to develop the safety system to satisfy the government, which required us to have a safety system in place. And then when my mapping business collapsed and I was no longer uh, a business owner and looking for my next opportunity, a friend of mine reached out to me and said, listen, you have all the safety training. If you upgrade, you can become a national construction safety officer, NCSO, and I will pay for the courses and you can come and work for me as a safety manager. And so I did that. And what I found over the course of training other people and leading a lot of these talks was that I had a really good skill set for safety, A, from the stunt work that I had done in Vancouver, and B, from years and years of being on stage and communicating effectively. And a lot of people would come to me and say, how do you do that? What do you, you know, could you teach me? And I started teaching executives how to give better presentations. And then that ended up spinning off into what is now my business with total buy-in, which was started with the idea of being a safety consulting firm, but has rapidly become a public speaking firm. It, it, it begat the book. It, it has the training programs. It's the keynote presentations that I give. All of those things have spun out of this little, little tiny kernel of a seed of people saying, how can you give such good presentations? Why are you so comfortable on stage? You know, and that's great. And I, looked at your book and it is phenomenal in giving people pearls of wisdom on how to be a speaker and how to do a speaker. You know, they say that 90% of people are so afraid of speaking that this is one of the greatest fears in mankind. So how can they overcome this? Well, the first thing is, is to reframe what you're afraid of. So again, that statistic, I, I see it a lot. I even use it in my marketing material, but I don't agree with it um, because it's that, you know, 90% of people express anxiety over public speaking. It's uh, second only to the fear of falling or fear of heights and is ahead of the fear of death, which leads to that famous Seinfeld joke that, you know, it means that you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. And the reality is, is we're not afraid of public speaking. If we were afraid of public speaking, commerce as we know it would break down. And for anyone who's listening to your show right now, who's going, no, Tyler, that isn't right. I'm legitimately afraid of public speaking. I would ask, when was the last time you were at a restaurant? Did you get the food that you asked for? And did you know your wait staff? Because if you were able to speak in the restaurant, and if you didn't know your wait staff, not only did you speak in public, but you spoke to a complete stranger and got what you wanted if your food got delivered to your uh, table. So this notion that we're afraid to speak in public, this notion that we're afraid to speak to strangers, or this notion that we're afraid to ask for what we want is completely null and void if you've ever been to a restaurant. The reality is we're afraid of public judgment. Because I can hear your audience right now screaming, Alan. They're like, no, 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 no. But if I'm ordering food in a restaurant, people aren't looking at me. And... And it's that 
that change of perspective of, are you afraid of public speaking or are you afraid of public judgment? And then recognizing that the audience is actually on your side. Anytime we go to one of these events, if we are an audience, if we're a participant uh, in you know, watching something, we want that speaker to succeed. And so it's doing that mental shift of starting to understand that you are the expert, you are the authority if you've been asked to present in any uh, capacity, whether that's in the boardroom, on a stage, or even one-on-one in interactions with uh, you know, maybe a team member that you direct. You are the authority or you wouldn't have had that opportunity to have that platform. The audience is on your side. They want you to succeed or they wouldn't be there. And so it's, it's the reframing of the stories that we tell ourselves that really has the quickest impact on, on getting up on stage and feeling comfortable there. And, and as you say, the clearest and easiest way to talk on stage is to talk from experience and to talk in stories. And yes. all of us have stories. I don't care if you're a bumpkin, you have a story about something. And usually the problem with that is that everybody thinks that their story needs to be a Michael Bay blockbuster, you know, with like explosions and cars flipping everywhere and guns pulled out, you know, like all of the the classic action hero tropes. And and that just isn't the case. Your story could be fascinating and interesting uh, to somebody who is in that specific thing. My um, uh, wife's grandmother uh, knits. And she runs a a training class in PEI at the university there. And she she teaches other people how to knit. And her life story around knitting is fascinating to those who are in the craft. But for, you know, if 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 it's not interesting to you, it it may be interesting to somebody else. And the problem is, is we tend to live our experiences. And so we, um, we are numb to the impact that they could have on other people if you share them. The reality is, is everybody has a story to tell. And it's- I I will throw in a little story here. Last summer, I was at our lake property and we were racing. My young nephew, uh, my young grandson, Zachary, and I were going to our house across the street. So I said, I'll race you. And I'm going as fast as I can. I look over at him and he's slowly moving his arms and his legs and really emphasizing how slow he's going. I ask him, what are you doing? And he says, giving you a chance, Grandpa. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if that isn't a two-minute story that makes everybody laugh, I don't know if anybody could do that. I mean, this is just part of living. And it is. And it's those it's those little moments, especially when you can give the detail to it. And that's really what makes a story impactful is when you can give the personal details as only you can tell them. You know, I've had the privilege of working with uh, a wonderful speaker, Bo Eason. And one of the things that he teaches is the more specific you make your story, the more universal it translates to those who hear it. Exactly. And that's the magic of doing it. Now, Sean Tyler, this show is called the How to Live a Fantastic Life show. How do you live a fantastic life? Well, first of all, by recognizing that it's my life to live and trying to live my life and not somebody else's life. And I was very, I remember in my early 20s being very stuck in that uh, 
competitive and comparative mindset where it was me against other people and someone else was doing things different or better or greater. And it wasn't until I started trying to do the best version of me as opposed to the best imitation of somebody else that I really found freedom within what I was doing and really found my stride too. Like uh, professionally, I, I started to do significantly better when I was just trying to do me the best way. And that's been probably the biggest key to my success. Okay. Now I'm going to flip this 180 degrees. and I'm going to ask you, how can our listeners learn to have a fantastic life by public speaking and getting better at it? Well, the first one is um, the best public speakers are those who know themselves the best, right? Authenticity is synonymous with self-awareness and everybody is talking about how they want authentic speakers. One of the advantages to uh, being a really good professional presenter is you know yourself to your core and knowing yourself to your core is kind of that key to being the best version of you as opposed to comparative. So one of the things that I would strongly encourage all of your listeners to do, if they want to be a very impactful speaker, they want to live their best life through public speaking, start to explore your stories, learn what makes you unique and exploit that because Somebody else may have done something similar to what you have, but you're the only one who did it your way. You are the only one who had the unique circumstances to your specific um, gift or talent, uh, even though, you know, maybe it's tap dancing and, you know, Brian Foley is a better tap dancer than you are, but you still have the talent and somebody else maybe doesn't have it the way that you do. So explore what makes your gift unique when you started doing it and be able to tell it in a unique and powerful way. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That, that is very important. And, you know, if you have trouble with that, there are some simple things to do. You know, Toastmasters offers courses in public speaking. Now, also, it's great to take an improv acting course to get better at public speaking, because that helps you to put your emotions out there and your feelings out there and people react better to you as a person that way. Well, not only that, but I, I would strongly encourage the improv class. It's actually one of the things that I encourage in all of my uh, training courses because it forces you to think on the fly. It forces you to be in tune with the audience. And usually when we're having a bad presentation, it's because we're focused on ourselves, you know, Oh, what am I doing? How am I doing this? What do I, 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 and when you focus on your audience and are really in tune with what your audience is trying to do, uh, those tend to be those really good presentations and improv forces you to do that. The other thing that improv does is it forces you to listen to your other cast that are on the stage. And the biggest um, asset to a really good improvisational performer is not their ability to say the things, but their ability ability to listen and take into account what is being said and what is happening around them and be very in tune to the now and their environment. And that's what makes a really good presenter. That, that is a huge statement. That is a remarkable statement. Okay, Sean Tyler, how can people find out more about you, your world, and how can they get a copy of your book? 
Well, a couple of different things. So if they come to my website, which is seantylerfoley.com, they'll get a couple of different things there. Uh, Rate above the fold is an invitation to join my free Facebook group called Endless Stages. If you come through the website and join Endless Stages, where I go live every Tuesday at noon Pacific, 3 Eastern time, 1 o'clock for those of us in our time zone, Alan, uh, that uh, I will do a 20 minute training every Tuesday live based on whatever the group input is. You'll also get a free PDF download of my book. So you can check it out and see if you like it uh, without having to invest in the paper copy. If you are a paper copy type person, you can actually get my book in any bookstore. My publisher did a really good job of getting it internationally out there. But if you're one of those people who really likes, you know, the online experience, you could go to Jeff Bezos's site. It is available there, but you'll pay more for it. One of the places that I would strongly encourage people to get the book from is a uh, phenomenal website called bookshop.org. Now it's, uh, I believe it's now available in Canada. It's primarily for us uh, residents, but you can get my book cheaper on bookshop.org. The other advantage of bookshop.org is it will connect you with your local book retailer, your mom and pop brick and mortar store. And so instead of supporting a billionaire who's flying to space in a phallic shaped rocket, you can actually support your local retailer at the local level. And um, bookshop.org will take a percentage of the proceeds and put it in a pooled fund. And to date, they've raised over $30 million that local bookstores can apply to for aid and finance uh, financing. So it's a really, really good organization. So anybody who wants to get a, a paper copy and you don't want to walk to your local bookstore, uh, bookshop.org is a great place to go to get a copy of my book. And if you come to the website on top of the free PDF, on top of the invitation to endless stages, I'll also give you a free course called Drop the Mic, which is five or seven five-minute videos specifically designed to make you a better public speaker in less than a week. So those would be my gifts to to your audience, Alan, if they so wish to come and visit SeanTylerFoley.com. And Sean is spelled the proper Irish way, S-E-A-N. Can you spell your name so everybody gets it proper? Yes, S-E-A-N-T-Y-L-E-R-F-O-L-E-Y.com. And uh, come on by. We're happy to have you. Thank you, Sean, for being Thank you, Sean Tyler, for being here today. This has been really a fun show, and I'm sure everybody got a lot out of it today. It was my joy and pleasure, Alan. Thank you so much. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, check out my website, drallenlika.com. That's D-R-A-L-L-E-N-Lika, L-Y-C-K-A.com. Why? Because you can get a golden pearl there each and every week that'll help you with your life. Bye for now. You've been listening to How to Live a Fantastic Life. Be sure and pick up a copy of Dr. Laika's book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life, on Amazon.com. And you'll want to subscribe right here on this page so you don't miss a single episode. Have a fantastic day. Fantastic.